The word this morning comes from Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. Then Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. Now behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, who was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. And he sought to see who Jesus was, but could not, because of the crowd, for he was of short stature. So he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was going to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said to him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must stay at your house. So he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. But when they saw it, they all complained, saying, He has gone to be a guest with a man who is a sinner. Then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor, and if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. It's only 10 verses in the Bible. The story of Zacchaeus is only 10 verses in the Bible. Luke is the only person who tells the story. And yet I think the story of Zac is one of the most well-known stories of Jesus' interactions with people. Is that fair to say? And I think part of it is because of the drama of the story. You can picture it, can't you? As, as Frank read that out, we were there. We were with the crowds. We were imagining this short man scurrying up a tree. We can imagine him coming back down again. And we can sense his joy in it as well, that Jesus would actually ask that he come back to his place for the day. So there's this drama which I think imprints this story in our minds. I think the other thing about it is it's a story of change. We love stories of transformation. We love it when we actually see this very tangible, very real change in someone's personality, someone's outlook, and that's certainly the case with Zach. But then the other thing that we love about the story, I think, is it's the story of the underdog. He's the short guy nobody likes. And we all love a story about short guys who nobody likes who come good who win, right? And so we love this story of Zacchaeus. Well, we know why he's the underdog. He's the underdog because of what he does. He's a tax collector, which is not as we would understand a tax collector, but he's actually like a toll collector. So you understand the concept of tolls. Many of us don't want to drive in traffic on Epping Road each day, and so what you do is you pay a toll and you hop on the M2 for the privilege of sitting in a traffic jam on the M2 instead of on Epping Road. So that's kind of what the toll was about. And what Zacchaeus would have done is he would have purchased off the Romans a license to collect tolls for merchants and traders coming through Jericho. Jerusalem was about 30 k's on. Traders would come through and either trade their goods in Jericho or they would make their way through Jericho on the way to Jerusalem. And to get through, they would need to pay a toll to Zacchaeus or one of his underlings. Zacchaeus was not just a toll collector, he was actually a chief toll collector which meant that he had other people around Jericho making sure that nobody snuck through without paying the tax man. Now, being a toll collector made Zacchaeus two things, and you can probably guess what they were. First is that he was very wealthy. And we're told he was a man of great wealth. Good luck to him. You buy the business, you you reap the rewards from it. 
But the second thing it made him was unpopular. Yes, hated is probably a better word. He really was despised. He was despised by his own people because he was effectively collecting revenue for the occupying forces. But he was also unpopular because, seriously, who likes paying taxes? That's just the way it was. And so as people came to actually do their business in Jericho or make their way through Jericho, here's the key as one of his employees taking money off you to do that. So let's not just think that Zacchaeus was hated by his own Jewish people. Let's just make the point he was hated by everyone. And so this is the scene in which their story gets told. And so Luke tells the story that Jesus enters Jericho and he was going to pass through. He's on his way to Jerusalem. And this would have generated enormous excitement. Now, Jesus by this stage would be quite well known. And so there's this sense in which the town, as they heard the news, Jesus is coming into our town, that they would know who Jesus was. Jesus was this one who they would have heard about, this rabbi with controversial but brilliant teaching. But more than just a rabbi, some were saying that he was perhaps, perhaps the Messiah because there were reports of what he had been doing, the miracles, things that people had seen. So blind people could now see, lame people could now walk, uh, lepers had been healed, people with evil spirits had been set free from them. And so there's this sense of excitement about what would this man do, what would this man say? Now, when I first heard this story, probably in Sunday school, and it probably involved a flannel graph, if any of you remember what those things were, but I always had this picture of orderly roads, like you guys are. You know how like when you see a procession coming through a town, there's barricades and people stand politely on the edge of it and they wave or they fly flags, right? And the person waves as they go by. Don't ever think that that's what happened in this city. Jesus would have come into Jericho with a crowd already attached and as he walks through the town, you know what happens? It's like people just get scooped up into this crowd because they're not just waving at him going by. They want to see what he is going to do. They've heard about him and so they want to be there when he says something controversial or brilliant. Uh, They've heard about what he can do, so they want to be there when he actually does a healing or a miracle. And so as the crowd is going through Jericho, it's building and they are pressing around him because no one is giving up their position to be close to Jesus. They all want to see what he's done. And we're told that Zacchaeus also wants to see Jesus, but he can't. And Luke actually says he could not see Jesus because of the crowd. Now, there are two ways that we can understand this, and it may well be that both were true. The first thing is, uh, the first sense is that Zacchaeus couldn't see Jesus because he was a short fellow, and he could not see over the people to see Jesus, and that's probably part of the sense. But the Greek reads more, he could not because of the crowd. And there's this sense in which as Zacchaeus is wanting to push through and see Jesus, that the crowd are pushing him back. He is not a well-liked guy. And his money will not buy him a position close to Jesus. And there's this sense of which as he tries to get in, the guys are just blocking him. The elbows are coming out and it's like, get back, get back. And this is where the story gets a little strange. And particularly if you're a first century reader, you would laugh as this part comes out. Because it says that he ran ahead. Now, Jewish men don't run. You understand that from the story of the prodigal, right? Jewish men, dignified Jewish men don't run. Zacchaeus runs. This is how desperate he is to see Jesus. He runs ahead. And then if you think that running as a Jewish man is undignified, he climbs a tree. Seriously, remember what Jewish men wore? Okay. Jewish men never, ever climbed trees, but he did. 
He does these two things, shameful almost. He runs ahead, he climbs a tree, and he waits so that he can see Jesus. And then for the crowd who were following along, pressing in around Jesus, hoping and waiting for something brilliant and unexpected to happen, well, then it happens. Except it's not brilliant. They're quite annoyed at it. But it's certainly unexpected. Uh, Jesus comes to the tree and he looks up and he says, Zach, come down immediately. Now, that just takes me back to my childhood. Have you ever had that said to you by one of your parents? Or have you ever said that to your kids? You see them up a tree and you say, come down right now before you fall. Well, that's not how Jesus said it. It wasn't a sense, Zach, get out of that tree. What are you thinking? You're a Jewish man. Get down now and stop embarrassing yourself. There's this kindness and an invitation, a sense of I think Jesus had a a bit of laughter in his voice as he looks up and he says, Zach, Zacchaeus, come down right now. I'm not worried about you breaking your arm. I want you to come down right now because I must stay with you today. That word must is really important. Because as we read this, we understand that Jesus was passing, his intention was to pass through Jericho, but something happens in this interaction that is really divinely ordained. Jesus doesn't say, Zacchaeus, feeling really thirsty, could do with a pot of tea. Come down immediately, because I really want to go to your place. Or, Zacchaeus, me and my friends here, we're really hungry. What about some food? Can you come down? We'd really love to. It's not like that at all. There's a sense of, I must stay with you today. And for those who would have read this or heard this story, they would know what's going on. There's something about to happen of great significance. Now, we actually don't know much of the conversation of what happens in the house. We don't know how many people were there, but obviously there is a household. Zacchaeus would have had family. He would have had servants, being a wealthy man. Maybe there were others who invited in. Perhaps his underlings who worked for him came as well. But something takes place in that interaction as Jesus and whoever was with Jesus comes and and stays at the house that day with Zacchaeus and his household. Something happens. And we sense the change that is in Zacchaeus because at some point in the afternoon or after lunch or whenever it was, Zacchaeus gets up and he stands before Jesus and he speaks to Jesus, but he also says this in the company of all those who are around him. He says, Look, Lord, here and now, I give half of my possessions to the poor. And there is that sense, it's a good translation in the sense that he's talking about right now, there's a sense of which I'm actually already doing it. I don't know how he's doing it at that moment, but there's that sense, it's not like, well, Lord, when I've paid off this house, I'm going to give more to the poor. Uh, Lord, uh, when I can actually get to the bank on Monday, I'm going to give more to the poor or half to the poor. There's not that sense, there's a sense of here and now, Lord, right now, beginning now, I give half of what I own to those who need it. And if I have cheated anyone out of anyone, if I have looked at their wares and overtaxed them, if I've collected what I shouldn't or done anyone any wrong, I will pay them back four times what they're owed. We read it and we get this impression that something has changed in Zacchaeus. His wealth is no longer what matters most to him. In fact, it matters now so little to him after an afternoon with Jesus that he's willing to just give half away right now and he's willing to repay anyone who he has deceived or stolen from in the past. It just bubbles up out of him. There's no pressure upon him to do that. But the thing I think I love most in this story is Jesus' response to him. And there's a couple of things out of Jesus' response 
Uh, I just want us to understand and apply to our own lives. These are things that were spoken over Zacchaeus, but also uh, something that Jesus says about himself, which have just enormous implications for everyone who has heard this story, read this story, and implications for us this morning. The first thing that I just want to speak about is what Jesus speaks over Zacchaeus. Because when you think about it, for many, many years, lots of things had been spoken over Zacchaeus. He would have been called a traitor. He would have been called a cheat. Uh, He would have been called shorty, or maybe other things even worse. There were things that perhaps he spoke over himself or defined himself by. He would have defined himself by his occupation. I am a tax collector. I am someone who is wealthy. I am someone who has other people working for me. I am a husband, uh, a father. I have many servants. There were things that he would have identified himself as. But the thing that Jesus says to him, which I love, is that this man too is a son of Abraham. That this man too is a son of Abraham. And no one in that town would ever refer to, to Zach as a son of Abraham. He wasn't a true Israelite because he was a sinner. He wasn't a true Israelite because he worked for the Romans. But Jesus declares that over him. This man too is a son of Abraham. And this expression, son of Abraham, carries with it so much meaning. So much meaning out of all of Scripture, out of all of the covenants beginning with Abraham, that this man, Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus the short man, the traitor, the wealthy man, but nobody liked This man is a son of Abraham. And there's a sense in which every other label that Zacchaeus had been given and every other label that Zacchaeus had taken for himself piles away in insignificance because of this one declaration that Jesus makes over him, that he is a son of Abraham, that he belongs, that he belongs to the family of God, that he belongs to the kingdom of God, that he belongs, he is an heir to all of the promises. There's a beautiful passage that Paul writes in the book of Galatians about being a son of Abraham. Let me read it out to you. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. In Christ Jesus, you and I are all children of God through faith. And that was the word that was spoken over Zacchaeus. By his faith in Christ, he is a true son of Abraham. And by our faith in Christ, we are also made children of God. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. And then these well-known words in terms of labels, how we understand ourselves. You see, there is neither Jew nor Gentile because no longer does our ethnicity matter. There is neither slave nor free because, again, neither now does it matter what status in society we hold, nor is there male or female. And those sharp distinctions which venerated being male over being female has been broken down because Paul says, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And just this lovely sentence that he finishes with, if you belong to Christ, if you and I belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. You are a son and a daughter of Abraham and heirs according to the promise. You see, what do we speak over ourselves? How do we define ourselves? By our occupation, by, you know, I'm 
I'm an Australian, but I'm a Kiwi-born Australian. I'm a husband, I'm a pastor, I'm a tax agent, I'm a friend to others. You see, how we define ourselves, all of those things are true and they're important, and yet all of them are secondary to what God speaks over us. That we are made in his image, male and female, made in his image. We are known by him, we are loved by him. All of us have the opportunity to become sons and daughters of him through faith. All of us can receive forgiveness. All of us have a hope and a future. See, these are the words that God speaks over us, that we too are true sons and daughters of Abraham. But the second thing that comes out of Jesus' words is that very last sentence where Jesus says, For the Son of Man, referring to himself, came to seek and to save the lost. And in saying those words, Jesus answers a question that had been asked in the previous chapter. Because Zacchaeus is not the first wealthy man who Jesus spoke with. Do you remember the story of the other wealthy man who Jesus spoke with? It happens in Luke chapter 18. This wealthy man, also a ruler, comes to Jesus and he asks the question of Jesus, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus asks him some questions and we discover that this man is wealthy. But not only is he wealthy, but unlike Zacchaeus, he's like meticulous in his keeping of the rules. He said, all of the laws, I've kept them since I've been a young lad. And Jesus just then simply says, well, give up everything you have and follow me. And he can't because we're told he had great wealth. And unlike Zacchaeus, who on that day Jesus came over, was so filled with joy, this other wealthy man walks away sad. And the crowd around, rather than grumbling about Jesus going to the house of a sinner, they're absolutely stunned by what's happened. And do you remember their question, which doesn't get answered? Who then? If this man, this wealthy man, this man who has kept all of the laws all of his life, cannot find eternal life, cannot be saved, who can? And the beauty of the story of Zacchaeus is it answers that question. Who then can be saved? What's the answer? Anyone. Even a short tax collector who's a sinner. Anyone who has faith. Jesus said he came to seek and to save the lost. And we realised in that sentence that when we read the story of Zacchaeus, we think Zacchaeus wants to see Jesus. But all along, Jesus wants to see do I get that the right way around? We think that Zacchaeus wants to see Jesus, but all the way through the story, it's actually Jesus who wants to see Zacchaeus. And that's the same for us, right? You understand that before you were born, before you even knew about God, before you'd even heard the story of Jesus and Zacchaeus, Jesus was already looking for you. Before you were even aware of it, God had already made a way for you to come to him through Jesus Christ. And that when we make one step towards Jesus, all of a sudden we realise that he was there all along. I love the fact that Jesus was the one seeking Zacchaeus, not the way we often tell the story. All Zacchaeus needed to do was climb down out of a tree. That was his response of faith. And again, I think sometimes many of us climb a tree because we want to see Jesus, we want to observe him. Because it's not that Zacchaeus didn't have to do anything. Jesus came seeking him, but when Jesus said... Come down out of that tree immediately, Zacchaeus did. You know, we often talk about stepping out in faith. 
when you hear the story of Zacchaeus, can I put a new phrase in your mind? That you would climb down in faith, regardless? That's the word. Undignified way in which you may need to do that. Who then can be saved? Anyone. Anyone who's prepared to stop looking, just looking on. Anyone who's prepared to give up the, just the tiresome ritual of being a law-abiding, rule-keeping person all the time and actually realise that our salvation comes through our faith in Jesus Christ and nothing else. It's a response of faith to the grace that God has already offered to us. Who then can be saved? I can. You can. Provided we're willing to climb down out of our tree and to spend some time with Jesus. You see, that's the beauty of this story. And that's why we should remember it. Jesus transforms lives. He always has and he will continue to do so. But he transforms lives, not by commending people who have striven, strived so hard throughout their entire life to keep the rules. He doesn't transform lives by commending those who watch from a distance and read from a distance what he has done. He transforms lives by inviting us to be with him and just asking for that response of faith to the grace that is already given. I don't know how you do your Christian life and who you identify most with. Perhaps you feel more like the wealthy ruler who's just tried so hard to do the right things all the way through your life and yet has still got that nagging question, what now? What must I do to be saved? Or whether you feel like Zacchaeus felt, an outsider, somebody who was treated with disdain, who probably was as hard on himself as anybody else in the town was as well. But regardless of which one you feel like, the answer to the question is the same. Who then can be saved? Anyone who climbs down out of the tree and in faith follows Jesus. So can I pray for us? Father, thank you that throughout the entirety of your word, the message of salvation is so clear that you look for people with faith, that Abraham was commended not for what he did but for his faith, and that all through the scriptures you look for those who would respond to your invitation, your gracious invitation to follow you, to follow you in faith. Father, we thank you that in Jesus Christ your love was shown to us and poured out for us in such a tangible way. And then again, you don't ask us to perform, you ask us to respond in faith to the grace that is given to us. Father, may our lives be one, lived out of a sense of joy and thankfulness for all that you have done for us. May our lives be lived out of an understanding of who you call us to be, that we are new creations in Christ, that we are those who have been transformed by the Spirit of Christ, that we are those whom you are continuing to shape into the likeness of Jesus Christ. May we live our lives out of that celebration of knowing that we are forgiven, that we are loved, that our sins have been covered over and that we have a hope and a future because we are your sons and daughters. And so, Lord, may that shape our worship. May that shape just our desire to be with you. May that shape the way in which we serve, the way in which we give, the way in which we do all of life. May our lives be ones that give glory to you and your grace that testify to your goodness. And we pray this in his name. Amen.